All right. Tonight we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Where we left off last week, um, King Saul's jealousy of his young general David is starting to boil over. And he's been indirectly seeking his death, um, challenging him militaristically, putting him out on the line. Uh, But where things start to shift now, Saul runs out of options and starts to directly seek to take David's life. And that's where we pick up in chapter 19, verse 1. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Now, we already know that Jonathan and David are close, and that relationship uh, kindled incredibly quickly. Just after the victory that David has over Goliath, Jonathan recognizes David as, uh, as a big believer in God like he is, as a kindred spirit. And so they've already made a commitment, a covenant to one another, a vow of loyalty to one another. And so you can imagine how heartbreaking this must be for Jonathan to hear his father speak in this way. And notice here in verse 2 it says, And Jonathan told David... Now we're going to see over the course of these chapters tonight, consistently Jonathan is forced to choose sides and chooses David's sides. And in a big way, Jonathan becomes David's protector. He keeps him alive from the plans and conspiracies of his father. And so he comes to David and he says, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. Okay, so notice Jonathan's plan here. He says, David, I want you to hide near, near the path. And I'm going to go on a walk with my dad, and along the way, I'll talk with him. I'll try and reason with him, and then you'll really know all that is in Saul's heart. And Jonathan speaks pretty frankly to his father. He says, this would be a sin. And not just a sin, he says, a sin of the king against his servant, David. Okay? David has been nothing but consistently loyal to Saul, despite a couple of episodes that would give him reason for concern. Twice now, uh, while David was playing music for Saul, uh, uh, Saul has grabbed a nearby spear and tried to pin David to the wall. He escaped, if you will, by the skin of his teeth. Um, But here, Jonathan comes and he confronts his dad and he says, "Not, not only has he not sinned against you, but he has been the greatest general you've ever had. All the victories of David he's accomplished in your name, at your request. Verse 5, for he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. And so another thing he adds here is God has been working in David, okay? So it's not just Saul has been sending David out, but clearly God is with David. To stand against David would in some sense to stand stand against God. (laughs) And then he says, and also at the time, you rejoiced. You rejoiced in this 
Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Do you notice the repetition in this final clause there? Innocent blood without cause, that's a synonymous phrase. He's really pushing the fact that Saul doesn't have a leg to stand on here. And notice, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And so this is the first time Jonathan saves David's life, and he does so by convincing his father to back off. Verse 7, Jonathan called David. Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was presence, in his presence as before. Okay, so for at least a period of time, there's safety again. Saul has spoken rashly. He's invited not just his son, but his servants to kill David, but now he's cooled off. David's back in the throne room, back in um, whatever you could call Saul's good graces. Verse 8, there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Okay, and so the pattern here begins to repeat itself. One of the great problems that Saul has with David is the problem of jealousy. Because he used to be the one who the people looked to. He was the king who was appointed to go before them and fight their battles. And now David is being praised. Remember the people were calling out as they returned. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And then on top of that, he comes down with another bout of harmful spirit. Verse 9, Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. Now this arrangement had been going on since David was very young. Um, Ever since Saul had lost the kingdom, uh, God had been sending this harmful spirit, this spirit to do Saul harm, and it somehow psychologically tormented him. And the only medicinal fix he'd found was the music of David. And so you can get the picture here. I don't know why, but I have a pretty um, concrete picture of it, you know, with Saul leaning against his hand in his throne and David playing beautifully. And as always, there's a spear right next to Saul's throne. And once again, verse 10, Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Okay, and so here we have the shift. For a while, Jonathan is able to, uh, to keep his dad at bay, but another battle, another victory, another bout with the harmful spirit, another opportunity And David realizes that this isn't going to change. And so he doesn't just flee the room, he flees the compound. Okay, verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Now I want you to notice here, first, it's Jonathan that protects David. Now it's his wife Michal, who is Saul's daughter. Okay, And so here we find both of Saul's children operating as protectors of David. She's aware of, you know, the um, nondescript uh, nondescript, um, Pontiac sitting out front and the two guys who have been there all day with the coffee, you know, scouting out the house. And so she comes up with a plan to help him escape. One of the things that's significant about what we've read so far is that David isn't really the primary actor. To to illustrate this, just in case you didn't notice, look at verse 7 again. 
And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul. Do you see who's the mover and the shaker there? It's Jonathan, and in the same way, it's Michal here who is operating on David's behalf. So he, she warns him, and then verse 12, Michal let da- David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. Um, now, this is, this is funny to me. It's, it's kind of over the top, but it, it, essentially what it does is it buys, buys David just a little bit more time, right? And so she takes literally a teraphim. Um, so this is not just, uh, you know, a life-size doll, but, but some sort of life-size doll for worship. Remember, she is the daughter of Saul, and so her relationship uh, with God is a little bit questionable across the story, but nonetheless, she's got this human facsimile, and she puts it in the bed, and then she puts a little goat hair at the top just hanging out of the sheets. The reason why this makes me laugh is because when I was a child, I did the same thing to my mother. One night, she took too long coming to my bed to say goodnight, and I had one of those My Little Buddy dolls. And this is unfortunate, but true, we had the same haircut. That same super straight, short, bulk haircut. We had the same haircut. And so I took the pillows of my bed and shoved them down and put the doll at the top with his hair sticking out and I climbed under the bed. And honest story, my mom addressed that doll for well over five minutes until I finally couldn't take it anymore and I began to laugh. Um, The plot here, the plan is basically the same thing. Um, And so what happens here is the guards come in and they attack literally a pillow Uh, before they realize what's going on. And what that does is it gives David that extra every minute counts possibility of getting away from uh, from these guards. And so uh, here in verse uh, 14, when Saul sent messengers to David, he said, she said, excuse me, Michal said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, saying, bring him up to me in bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michal, what, why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go so that he has escaped. And Michal answered Saul, he said to you, said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? In other words, she says, I didn't have a choice in the matter. She defrays the possibility that she's conspired against her own father, who happens to be the king, and says, he threatened my life, I had to let him go. Okay? Now, that, that doesn't explain the fake body in the bed, um, but, but it's enough to effectively get Saul off her back. Now, we're going to see quite a few times tonight those who are in dire circumstances uh, and lie their way out of them But the important thing is here, David is safe and on the run, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And so where does he go? Where does a fugitive of the king go? In this case, he goes to see Samuel. Now remember a couple of things here. First, Samuel is the uh, present tense prophet. And so here he operates as a representative of God himself. Uh, Second, Samuel is the anointer of kings. Not only did he anoint Saul and speak frankly to him about the removal 
of that kingdom, but he's also the one who anointed David. And then lastly, it's worth pointing out that Saul also knows the danger, or excuse me, Samuel also knows the danger of Saul, because when he went to anoint David, he went quietly, okay? And so this is just where he goes for refuge, and he shares his story with the prophet Samuel. And so um, he explains all that he'd done to him, and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And so they effectively escaped together in a nearby town, not in Ramah. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as a head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Okay, so he's got these messengers slash hitmen slash royal guard. And they know where Samuel and David are hiding, but when they arrive, they see Samuel leading a choir of prophets. Um, and so they're all prophesying aloud, and Samuel's right at the head, and as soon as these soldiers see them, they too are overcome with the spirit of prophecy. And apparently it's so proactive and compelling they either have to stay and prophesy or leave. There is no other option. There's no, um, there's no prophesy and grab David. There's no stop prophesying. It's, it's just, it overwhelms them entirely. Verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that's in Seku and asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said to him, Behold, they're at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, and he prophesied until he came to Nioth at Ramah. So Saul's had enough of these incompetent messengers who can't seem to get the job done. He goes, That's fine, I'm going to go myself. And before he even gets to where Samuel is, he's told to head to Nioth. And on the road, before he sees Samuel, he begins to prophesy. It overcomes him. Uh, and so while he's on the road and walking, this is going on over and over. And then notice, notice verse 24, and he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all night. Thus it said, is Saul also among the prophets? And so what happens is as he glitz closer to the town, he just compulsively starts to strip down his clothing. And when he gets to Samuel, he kind of wanders around in a circle prophesying and then lays down on the ground and continues to do so. He cannot do otherwise. Now, this is a weird happening, but clearly this is an act of God. Okay? God here is protecting David and Samuel. And first it was Jonathan, Saul's son, then it was Michal, David's wife, who's Saul's daughter. And now it's the very God who anointed Saul. In fact, notice the circumstances here. They sound strangely familiar. We're right near Ramah again. We're very close to the place where Saul was anointed king. And the promise that Samuel gave him when he was anointed was, when you go from here, you're going to encounter prophets and you too will prophesy. And so that's exactly what happens, confirming the truth of the anointing that Samuel had given him. And even at that time, the people looked at that and they went, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is Saul among the prophets? But last time, the question was, 
was seen as a strange oddity, but here it's such a terrible reversal. Uh, in fact, it's such an embarrassing circumstance. It's almost as if this common phrase is Saul among the prophets, something that was said on occasion or referenced, you know, like we might say, um, oh, the humanity, right? Referencing the Hindenburg. Uh, this phrase, suddenly it takes on a new meaning. Did you hear about Saul? He was chasing after David, and instead he began to prophesy and stripped off his clothes and laid on the ground all day, right? This is hardly the confirming, this is our king. You know, if anything, this is not the king they're looking for. See, among the prophets? I mean, what's going on here? You would think that this would be sufficient, even for Saul. He may be um, far from God's will, disobedient, a rebellious uh, king against God, but recognizing that God is not just in theory on the side of David, but actively protecting him, you would think that would stop him, but it doesn't. Chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Now, I think there's a lot of um, grievous reality in this passage here. David's at the end of his rope. And he comes to Jonathan and he says, you know as well as I do, I'm completely innocent. Give me one piece of evidence to the contrary. And at the same time here, instead of defending David, Jonathan defends his father. He's not sure it's all that bad. And he basically says, look, if my dad was going to kill you, he'd tell me. Okay. At the very least, it's a little bit naive here. But isn't it understandable? This is why I say that it's grieving. What would it be like to be Jonathan? What would it be like for Saul to be your dad? To take the man that you love as your closest friend, who you greatly admire, who you watch faithfully for year after year, serve your father, and often get the rough end of the deal, the short side of the stick, and have to deal with this tension. He's just holding out, holding out that maybe his dad will back off. Verse 3, David vowed again and said, Your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death. And he says, why do you think your dad would tell you? Don't you think he's realized by now how close we are? Don't you think he knows the pain it would cause you? And you're out of the loop now. You're no longer a trusted source of information for for me. Jonathan, you can't protect me. I'm a step away from dying, verse 4. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave me, to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. So notice here, David has a water testing plan. He goes, let's find out where your dad is really at. And so you know there's a new moon festival. Usually I'd be sat right at the king's table with the rest of you, but I'm not going to show up. 
I'm not going to show up the first night. I'm not going to show up the second night. And surely your dad is going to say, hey, where is David? And he says, what I want you to tell him is that I had my own family commitment, my own festival, a yearly sacrifice, probably a fellowship offering that his parents were going to offer. And so he was called away to be a part of that. Okay, verse 7, if he says, good, it'll be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Okay, so the test here is pretty simple. He takes a relatively innocuous reason for absence. I had a commitment. My family called me away. Remember that uh, responsibility to parents ranks pretty high in Israel. And if he understands, then maybe I've blown this out of proportion. But if he's the one who blows up, if he's shocked by this, then surely, clearly, clearly, this is dangerous. And so he says, verse 8, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Now I think one of the hardest things for David over the course of this uh, is he gets to a place where he doesn't know who to trust. In fact, we're going to find that he often finds comfort in strangers and enemies because the risk is so big here. And so he comes to Jonathan and he said, we've made commitments of loyalty. He says, if you're lying to me right now, if you know your father has it out for me and you're mad at me as well, then I'd rather you kill me than him. But obviously, at the same time, he's saying this, knowing full well that he's innocent, he just wants to remind Jonathan of his responsibility. Verse 9, Jonathan said, far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? He professes again his love and his reason for trust. Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Okay, so the only part of the plan he doesn't have figured out is how he's going to hear if things go sideways. Because obviously it's no good if he finds out that Saul is just you know, steaming out the ears about this absence, and then he shows up the next day. So how is he going to hear if it's worst-case scenario? And at this time, it's Jonathan that comes up with a plan. Verse 11, Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Okay, they get where no one can hear them, out away from all the people. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. So notice here, he swears. He swears before the Lord and he says, I will let you know. And I will send you out, and you will go out guiltless. And so, verse uh, 14, we see the other side of the promise here. What does he want from David in return? Verse 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So notice here, Jonathan is aware of God's promise to David to be king. Remember as well that Jonathan is the most, like, uh, most likely heir apparent of Saul. He's the next in line for the throne. He sets that aside here, but he also speaks very frankly. He knows what that usually means. In the ancient world, when there's a change in dynasty, it's done in blood. 
okay? You generally don't want to leave the child of the king you dethroned alive. And so Jonathan says, all I ask in return is, A, that you spare my life, and even if I don't live, that you show steadfast, committed, covenant love to my household. Okay? That's what he asked for in exchange. In verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Now, hear that with all of the weight that it requires. Who is David's enemies? Who is it who's plotting against David? It's Jonathan's own father. Okay? This is a tremendously strong pledge of allegiance and a covenant that they make here. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Okay, and so that's enough for Jonathan. It's just the evidence of David's love. And he says, swear by your own love for me that this will be the case. And then we're told very sweetly and deeply um, that he loved him as much as he loved himself. Verse 18, Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain behind the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. Behold, I'll send the young man saying, go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, look, the arrows are on the side of you, take them, then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it's safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And so he says, okay, this is how I'm going to let you know. I'm going to go out to the archery range and act like I'm hitting a target, but I'm going to intentionally miss. If I fall short of the target and, I, and you hear me calling my helper to gather the arrows in front of the target, then you'll know that everything's okay and you can come. But if I shoot beyond it and send him out into it, then you'll know that you need to just cut and run um, from your hiding place and get out of town. Um, verse 24, so David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat op opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Now, that description does tell us kind of who's attending the dinner. There's nothing really surprising there. We see Abner, that's another one of Saul's generals who happens to be his uncle. We see Jonathan, that makes a lot of sense. But I want you to notice that it said, uh, it says here that he sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. On the seat by the wall. Okay. That detail strikes us as the type of detail we would call an eyewitness detail. Okay. If you sit down and you interrogate people who have just witnessed a crime and they're telling you the story of it, almost always they'll include what we call eyewitness details, which are irrelevant, but just part of the memory. You know, I can remember it was a Tuesday because I'd just gone to my dentist appointment, right? It doesn't really help us understand. It's just part of the memory itself. Here, it seems like this detail is given from the presence of someone in the room at the table and so they lay out the scene perfectly not just while Saul was sitting at the table but he was the one sitting by the wall with Abner on his left and Jonathan right across from him and an empty seat it's all laid out perfectly for us verse 26 yet Saul did not say anything that day for he thought something has happened to him he's not clean surely he's not clean 
Okay, if you go back and you read the book of Leviticus, you'll discover four holy days and feasts and things like this. Uh, Israel had to be ritually clean to attend. Every individual Israelite. Okay, the majority of those things, which could be accidentally encountering a dead body uh, or um, some sort of sexual happening or a few other things, generally you just need to wash, and by sundown you'll be clean. Okay, so what often happened in Israel is when there was a festival of multiple days, an accident will happen and somebody's not able to attend that first night. Okay, and so Saul looks at this and he goes, well, it's not really a surprise. He must have just been rendered unclean, ritually unclean, and so he couldn't attend. So he doesn't say anything the first night, verse 27, but on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I've found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. So just as David expected, now that there's no excuse, Saul asks, and Jonathan relays the story just as was planned. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, I'm sure you would recognize what the modern English parlance of that would be, and it would be just as ironic here, remember? Because who is this the son of? Saul's wife, okay? It's a pretty intense uh, verbal piece of anger, and notice he's not just angry at David, he's angry at Jonathan, okay? In fact, he continues here. He says... Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. He says, how can you side with him? That's one thing he says. He says, don't you know you're putting your own future at risk? But the second thing he says is, don't you know that I'm aware of the commitment you've made to him? Now, in a very clear sense, Saul is not aware. The covenant that we just read about, the promises that we were made, they weren't known to Saul, but Saul runs at a pretty high level of paranoia all the time. Okay? As we'll see, this idea of conspiracy against the throne is just going to grow and grow and grow, and a bunch more people than Jonathan are going to be lumped into it. Uh, but like the saying goes, a broken clock tells time rightly twice a day. right? And so he does know what's going on, and then Jonathan courageously defends David. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. Okay, and so David's not there for Saul to kill. He tries to kill his own son in his anger. Uh, then Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Now, once again, I don't think Jonathan is dense. I just think, like any other person, he doesn't want to believe the worst about his own father, but he has no way around it now. He knows what's going on. And so, 34, Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And so, notice here, he's not just grieved at the threat for David, but he's grieved at the shame 
that Saul is bringing upon David, uh, the disgracing that's going on. And so Jonathan can't even eat the rest of the festival because he's so overwhelmed by all these things. Now you remember there was a plan to communicate this and that's what we get in verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy, is not the arrow beyond you? Okay, now that's all he was supposed to say. Remember, that's the code word. But listen to what he adds to it here in verse 38. And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. Now he's not talking to the boy there, is he? Do not stay doesn't even resonate with what's going on with the boy. He's so overwhelmed by the danger, he increases the intensity of the message and basically says, you've got to run now. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to them, go and carry them to the city. Now at this point, we move on from what the plan was supposed to be, right? The message was intentionally private and quiet and completely hidden, and then they were supposed to go their separate ways. But instead here, the arrows are brought back to him. He takes his bow, he takes his quiver, he hands him to the boy, he sends him to the castle so he's alone because he cannot, um, he cannot just let David go. He has to talk to him first. And so, verse 41, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and fell onto the, uh, his face to the ground and bowed three times. Now, that's a pretty distinct level of honor. We see bowing happen often in the scriptures. Only here do we find it in a single setting three times. Okay? David is just humbled by the love and the effort of his friend Jonathan, and he honors him deeply in this way. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Once again, we get this kind of interesting de detail here. We, we understand here that this is not, um, not even a mutual grief, but David is the one who's weeping the most. He knows the cost of going on the run. He knows the cost of being the enemy of Saul, and the cost is nothing less than his best friendship. Okay? David and Jonathan aren't going to see each other after this point. Their whole friendship is severed by this familial animosity. Verse 42, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we've sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be, be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Okay, so now officially, no turning back, David is on the run. This next period of time, all the way till the death of Saul, takes up seven years. Okay, it's not a couple day or week affair, you know, he doesn't hide out in Argentina until the summer comes or something like that. Seven years, he's constantly and regularly on the run. And the first thing he does uh, is, is he flees to the place where the tabernacle is set up. Now, the last time we encountered the tabernacle, it was under the care of Eli and his family in Shiloh. Um, but as Isaiah tells us in the Psalms, Shiloh was sacked. Uh, during an earlier battle. And so now uh, it's moved to a small place called Nob. And so that's where David comes. David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And so here he comes into the camp and it's just David solo and Ahimelech knows something's wrong. 
He doesn't know what it is. He's shaking in his boots. He's trembling here. And so he comes out and he asks in verse 2, David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Okay, so basically here's his cover story. He says, the king sent me on a secret mission and I've stationed the rest of my platoon, the rest of my guards at a distance and come to you myself. That's how secret it is. Um, verse 3, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. So now we find out why David's here. He needs provision, right? He's, he's left his house. He's left his friends. He's left his city. He's on the run, and he needs to eat. And so he comes to a priest and asks for bread. Verse 4, the priest answered David and said, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. Okay. The holy bread that's being referred to here is the showbread. Okay. This was put out every day uh, in the holy place before the Lord, and then it was only to be eaten after that day when it was replaced by a new loaf by the priests themselves. That's all the food that's there. There's no common bread, no, uh, no bread that is viable for non-Levites to eat. He says, well, I do, I do have the showbread but I don't have anything. And then notice the priest modifies what's required here, and effectively he says, as long as you're all ritually clean, you can eat of that, okay? Now, you may remember that this is a story that comes up in an argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. They want to know why Jesus' disciples don't keep the Sabbath. In fact, what's actually happened is uh, that Jesus and his disciples are making their way through a grain field, and out of the blue, they're ambushed by the Pharisees. Okay? I say ambushed because they have really no reason to be there except to catch them in the act. Okay? And so they accuse Jesus of this, and this is the story he points to, and he says, don't you remember when David ate the holy bread? Don't you remember when the uh, showbread that was only for the priests was given to uh, to David and to his men. Um, now, the point that Jesus is making is there is a sense where the Old Testament law is sometimes overcome by a greater law. In fact, Jesus makes this argument about the Old Testament law often. Uh, the way that he sums it up, I think, the best and the most accept accessible is when he deals with the Sabbath law, which is what he's talking about in that grain field. That's where their complaint is. And this is effectively what he says. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In another place, he's talking about this, and he speaks to the Pharisees themselves, and they say, he says, if your animals fall in a ditch, won't you help them up? On this occasion, he's just healed a woman who's been bent over for more than a decade, but he heals her on the Sabbath. And so they're upset about this, and effectively what he says is that there is times where life trumps ritual. Okay, the whole point of the ritual was not to restrain and restrict, to bring death or even bondage, but it was actually about freedom. The Sabbath was made for man, means man needs rest, and God graciously gives it in the Sabbath. It's not as if God designed the seventh day of the week and said, now I should make some people to keep this, right? It's the other way around. He gave rest uh, to us. And so in the same way here, the ritual, even one as significant as the showbread, gives way to the needs of life. 
Now, there is a po- another possible interpretation out there, and that has to do with the fact that um, in the same way that David is the anointed, he's uniquely holy for this. It, you can make a comparison with Jesus, who's not just a man that Sabbath was made for, but as Jesus identifies himself, the Lord of the Sabbath, okay? Um, both of those, I think, get us to generally the same place, but it's this significant happening. Now, what's What's shocking in this is even though Jesus uses it as an example of taking care of need or maybe even the the unique status of David and therefore the unique status of himself, we can't get away from what in this story? David's cover story. He's made the whole thing up. He doesn't come and say, Saul's got me on the run. Do you have anything to spare? He says, I'm still working for the king. Everything's fine, but it's a secret mission. Can't tell you anything. Please give me some food. Now we're going to see this costs... Uh, this priest, uh, Ahimelech, as well as all the priests at Nob, as well as the entire Nob uh, city, all of the people of Nob, their lives, because of David's lie here. Okay. And like I said, I think that's kind of striking because we have a tendency uh, to be willing to break ritual for the righteous. We have a tendency um, to make requirements of those in need. And so sometimes we even talk about uh, the deserving poor. We very rarely use that language anymore. But if you read 60 years ago, 100 years ago, people will always talk about this category of the poor called the deserving poor, the one we should be helping because they deserve it. One of the things that strikes me throughout the Bible is it has a hard time finding the deserving poor. I think one of the greatest manifestations of God's generous, uh, generosity in the entire history of Israel is when he works over the hearts of the Egyptians so that when Israel is leaving as slaves, they don't leave empty-handed but are sent out with the jewelry and the riches of Egypt, freely given. But don't ever forget that it's those same jewels and riches that Israel uses to make the golden calf. Now, this is the all-knowing God of the universe, and we wouldn't call him an enabler of idolatry. He's just that gracious. He's just that generous. And even here in this story, it's, it's a mixed and it's a dark story, but Jesus still sees a significant principle of need playing out in this story. And so we too, I think, should be challenged um, to, to let need triumph over, I was going to say justice. I don't like that very much. It's off topic, but let me say very clearly that taking care of the poor, it falls in the category of justice, biblically. Read the book of Job, okay? It's not merciful. It's not above and beyond the requirement. It's something that the Bible actually says all human beings are required to is to help take care of the poor. But that's another story. So here's the problem, though. All of this goes on. David's got his cover story, but it's not just Ahimelech and the priests that are there. Verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now we don't know a lot of the backstory about Doeg, but it's probably fascinating because as we see here, he's an Edomite. He's not an Israelite. He comes from the line of Esau, this almost related, I mean, far enough back related family, not through the tribe of Jacob or through the line of Jacob, but through Jacob's brother Esau. Now, what he's doing working for Saul is somewhat mysterious, 
okay? Because even at this time and throughout Israel's history, there was plenty of animosity between Israel and the Edomites. On top of that, we don't know what it means when it says that he was detained before the Lord here. He's got some sort of service he's doing at the tabernacle, something that's brought him here, and we don't really know what it is. Maybe it's that he's become a faithful worshiper of Yahweh and he's taken a vow. That would make sense of the language here. Like we've talked about with the Nazarite vow, many people who took the Nazarite vow used that time to somehow significantly serve at the tabernacle. Um, But when we look at his character broadly, we just don't know. The important thing for us today is that he's here and he sees the whole thing. And so when his time is up, we're going to see that plays out. Verse 8, Then David said to Himelech, Have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. Now, he's pushing the lie to the limit there, right? Here he is on a secret mission of the king, and he didn't even have time to pick up a weapon. And so he says, do you have one? Now, most likely he's asking because he knows there's one here, because as we see, verse 8, verse 9, the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there's none but that here. And David said, there's none like that. Give it to me. Like I said, I would suggest that David knows this is here. And the reason I say that is because David is the one who took this from Goliath. We were told that he took the sword of Goliath. And so it's been stowed here, and he effectively, in in standard Hebrew distant questioning, asks for it back, and it's given to him. Now, don't forget where that sword came from. This is the sword of the giant Goliath that David killed. Now, that's not terribly significant to the story right here, but it's absolutely significant for what happens next. Verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of where? Gath. That's that's where Goliath is from. Okay? So this is David, the killer of so many Philistines, and he walks into one of the five biggest cities of the Philistines, the one known as Gath, where Goliath was from, and he's wielding the sword of Goliath who he defeated. It's almost impossible to understand what David's motivation here. I think the thing that it shows the most clearly is that David is truly afraid. Okay? Even his best options here are not good options. You might even wonder if he's thinking straight. And it only gets weirder from here, because as you would expect... David's reputation precedes him. He feels like he's undercover coming into Gath, but look. Verse 11, the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They've heard the song. They know his reputation. And remember, when it says Saul has struck down his thousands of Philistines, but David his ten thousands of Philistines. It's not a safe place for David to be, and there is no facade here. Verse 12, he overhears this conversation. He sees people pointing to him in the street. David took those words to heart, and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let the spittle run down his beard. And so he goes, oh, I'm in over my head, and he just starts to act like a madman. He dances around and he spits all over the place and he bangs on the doors of their houses, you know, so that he won't appear like a threat, I guess. 
so that they'll just leave him alone and let him go his way. Even if this was David, he's David no longer. Now, interestingly enough, um, let's, let's finish the chapter here, and then interestingly enough, verse 14, Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He just says, get him out of here, right? And so David is safely delivered here. But what I wanted to draw your attention to is when we read Psalm 34, it gives this happening as the context of its writing. Go ahead and look at it with me. A large portion of the Psalms are ascribed by the Bible to David. And some of them give us the timeline, the timestamp, if you will, of when they were written. And it's always powerful if you're reading through the Psalms and you see one of those descriptions to go and find the story. And so here, notice that 34 opens with this ascription of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went out away. Okay, and so... This is that time. David gets out of the city, gets to safety, and reflecting on this time, he writes this psalm. Now, what's striking about this psalm is it does help us get under the hood of David's heart. It helps us to see the motivation. But I also want you to see that in the midst of this, he learns a significant lesson. What did we see uh, in Nob, where David was there? We see David protecting David. What do we see here? He's, he's so out of options that he goes to his greatest enemies and has to come up with a plot uh, to get out of there. Uh, but remember, this is God's anointed, David. Remember, God is on David's side. He may have forgotten that, but God has not. So with that in mind, read the psalm with me. Verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from what? All my fears. Those who look at him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days so that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Seems significant. Right, as we're going to see, it's that deception that leads to the deaths of many. And here he gives a better exhortation to those who would hear. He continues on, verse 14, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those 
who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, one of the things I think we should notice there is that David rightly understands that it's fear that led him wrong. That it's fear that led to these sins. And it's worth us recognizing in our own lives how often our disobedience to God, our deceptions are a perfect example of this, stem from fear. And notice here, David doesn't say, I have nothing to be afraid of. He says, I have something I should fear more. Multiple times in the psalm, he talks about those who fear the Lord. And he points out that God doesn't need his conniving or his help to deliver him, that he's totally capable of delivering the righteous, those who are honest. Now, David, unfortunately, doesn't get the chance to come to these conclusions before now before he stands in a Philistine court and behaves, I mean, like a coward and therefore like a madman. Um, But he does remember these lessons afterwards and he passes them on to us. So, returning back to 1 Samuel. Let's finish off with chapter 22 here. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brother and all his fathers had heard it, they went down there to him. Okay, and so he comes to the caves of Adullam, a good place to hide out because there's lots of caves. And his family hears that's where he settled and they come and that's not all. Verse 2, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul, that's depressed, gathered to him and he became captain over them. And there with him was about 400 men. So on top of his family comes 400 people who are just down and out in luck. They're debtors. Uh, they're under calamity, they can't get their life together, and they side with David. Now, the truth is, when you're the enemy of the king, you have to take what you can get. But I wanted to point out uh, that these men are really going to prove themselves in loyalty to David. And when we get to the end of David's life, and it reveres all the great acts of the mighty men of David, that this is where they start. One of the things that's striking about David's career is that he is a tremendous leader, a great general. He, um, he evokes in all the people he meets great love and trust, and they love following David. Uh, and here, he doesn't turn away all of these people who are a mess. He doesn't turn away all these people who have absolutely nothing to offer him, right? There's no benefactor here who is going to get David out of this mess. In fact, really, part of the reason here is just because they're so uh, a mess themselves, But he takes these men, and by the end of the story, he makes something significant out of them. It's not that different than what Jesus does with the disciples, okay? Not only when we look at the 12 do we not see uh, an impressive roster of people that matter. It's backwoods fishermen, tax collectors, and a zealot, right? They're unimpressive, but also in character, they do not impress us across the Gospels, They're afraid, they're ambitious and zealous in all the wrong places, Uh, they're wrestling with one another to see who is the greatest, despite the fact that Jesus is in their midst, you know. It's it's like a peewee basketball game arguing which one of them is the goat, you know, when LeBron James is their coach. It doesn't make any sense. The whole way they behave, and then Peter, you know, who speaks so strongly, Lord, I will never deny you even if it costs you my life. And just as Jesus foresaw, that's not the way it is. But these men 
are so profound in their character and their accomplishment that their reputation after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, after the sending of the Holy Spirit, is these are the men who have turned the world upside down. The, the things that they go on to do, you know, shock even the Sanhedrin. And it says in chapter 4, as they're listening to Peter and John talk with boldness about Jesus, they realize that they've been with Jesus, right? That's, that's the difference. They've been transformed by Jesus and by his work. Um, but here he gathers around kind of these, these rough and tumble men, and they become his army for the next seven years. And so he doesn't stay there. He moves on, verse 3. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Okay, So once again, he moves out of the land of Israel, but this time into the land of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do with me. Okay, His parents are elderly at this point. They can't be traveling the world as refugees with a fugitive. And so he goes to the land of Moab. And remember, that makes sense because David's ancestry on his, uh, on, well, his father's side, but his great-great-grandmother's side, Ruth, she's a Moabitess, okay? And so there's some heritage here. There's some, some lineage that makes this a possibility, and he leaves them in Moab. Verse 4, he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, now we've not met Gad at this point yet, but he, along with Nathan and Samuel, are significant prophets for God during this time. In fact, we find out later in Second Chronicles that the reason we have a lot of David's history is because it was written down in the book of Gad. Okay? And so Gad becomes, uh, becomes a traveler with David, and we're going to see he's got an army, now he's got a prophet, uh, and by the end of chapter 22, he's going to have a priest. Okay? And so Gad comes and he has a message to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So he departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Okay, so now we see a shift here. Whereas David was calling the shots and on the run, because of Gad's uh, intervention and speaking for the Lord, he says, no, you have a job to do. You need to go back to Judah. Uh, and so he does so. Verse six, now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all the servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Okay, so notice here who he's addressing. He's addressing the sons of Benjamin. In other words, this is his clan. And the majority of the people at his upper echelon who are with him here are his family, his Benjamites like him. And he speaks to them and he says, what are you getting out of this? Do you really think David from Jesse, from Bethlehem, he's going to treat you like I have, given you the inside track, made you royalty in the kingdom, given you lands and field? He is here effectively accusing his own family of being part of the conspiracy. That's what's going on here. And so he's trying to just talk, uh, tell them how crazy they are for siding with David. But are they? They're gathered around Saul's military camp. Now, we'll see they're clearly loyal to David. But that's never meant that they're not loyal to Saul. Saul is his greatest enemy in this story. Not some big conspiracy. But he lays this out. He says, verse 8, Will he do all these things that all of you have conspired against me? 
No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Now there he pushes the paranoia even further. Do you hear what he says there? He says the instigator here is Jonathan. David's just the pawn. He says, none of you told me that Jonathan was paying David to put me to death. Right now, he's, the only way he can make sense of Jonathan's motivation in this, because he, he can't understand why he'd stand with David if he's losing the throne, and he goes, wait a minute. What if David's just an assassin, and this is how Jonathan gets the throne quicker? Okay. There is no other motivation for Saul. The throne is it. And so when he looks at other people, as is always the case, he sees his own bad motives in them. And so he just assumes everybody's hungry for the throne. David's not hungry for the throne. Jonathan's not hungry for the throne. But Saul is convinced that everybody is out to take it from him. And so he's saying these things, and then notice who's present in verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provision and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. In other words, Doeg says here, all right, you want a conspiracy? You want a villain? I know just the person. You should talk to your high priest who has been consulting with your enemy, receiving God's word for your enemy, supplying your enemy, and even arming him. And so, verse 11, the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. So he says to all of them, pack up camp, I want you all here right now, and they come. Verse 12, and Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub, and he answered, here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he's risen against me to lie in wait as this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? He goes, wait, David's on your side. He says, hold on, I was supposed to know that David stands against you when you're the one who put him in his position in power, when you're the one who paraded him before the people. He, he basically here is claiming total ignorance, which we know is absolutely the case. But he also makes a pretty solid case for himself. In fact, notice what he says in verse 15. Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? Is it uncommon for David to come and ask me for God to speak to him? You've sent him here in the past, Saul. He basically says, I'm the only one who was unaware of the change of the pattern here. I was just doing business as usual. And so he continues, he says, no, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. He basically says, with a ton of respect, Saul, you have no case. You have no evidence. You just have put together these pieces, but here's the real story. But verse 16, the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who uh, stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. And so he turns to the closest servants and he just says, take their lives. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Now, I find this really interesting because this is the second time those closest to Saul have refused an order. 
The first time was with, when Jonathan was unaware of the vow that Saul had put the whole army on not to eat anything until he'd had victory for the day. Jonathan didn't know that, tasted a little honey, things start to go south, and so he goes, all right, Jonathan, you're dead, and he starts to pull out his sword, and he says, you guys, get him, and they stand in the way, and they say, no way. Jonathan gave us this victory. The Lord used him. It's a striking dynamic to me. Um, it's obviously going to get Saul's goat, and it probably bothered him last time, to be honest, um, but he does allow it. And, and what I want to point out here is that we see here, as we see often in the scripture, that all authority has its limitation, and that it's a completely appropriate, and I would even say completely submissive thing to stand against it. What's important is the way that you stand against authority. And so we see this demonstrated in the New Testament when Paul in Romans 13 makes very clear that we're to submit to government. Peter does too in 1 Peter chapter 4. Okay? They say that we're to submit to those in authority over us. But in that occasion I mentioned earlier where Peter and John are boldly speaking about Jesus before the Pharisees and they say, look, okay, we've had a talk. We're going to let you go for now. Uh, but no more talking about Jesus or else. And Peter and John and say, you tell, of a, tell us if it's more right to listen to you or to God. Okay. And so they draw a line and they say, actually, you've overstepped your authority. This is above your pay grade. But it's worth pointing out throughout the New Testament, the authorities stand against Peter and James and Paul and all the rest pretty consistently. And what we don't see them doing is spitting in the face of those who arrest them. What we don't see them doing is, uh, you know, hiring dynamiters to plot against the government. What we don't see is conspiracy. What we do see is uh, what I like to call submissive rebellion. They take the punishment. They stand up for what's right, and then they endure what's coming, the consequence that comes with it. And so here his men stand against him, but... There's at least one person who will do the job. And so, uh, verse 18, Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 85 of the priesthood. 85 innocent men. And then it doesn't stop there, verse 19. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man, woman, child, infant, donkey, ox, and sheep, he put to the sword. Why is that list so complete? It's so complete because this is where the failure of Saul was the most profound. He was told to go against Agag and all of his people and put the whole thing to the sword. Nothing was to live, and he failed to do so. He spared Agag, he spared the best of the spoil, but here, when it's against his kingdom, instead of against the king of kings, he spares nothing. He demolishes it to the ground. Verse 20, But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. So one makes it out alive, and he happens to be in line to be the high priest. Okay? And so he makes it to David, and Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Okay, now notice, Abiathar says, Saul has killed the priests. How does David respond? Verse 22, David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. 
In fact, it's, it's softened here in the English, I've occasioned the death. But actually, he word for word uses the same phrase that it uses of Saul. Saul has killed, and here he says, I have killed them. He recognizes that it's his deception and his lie that put uh, Ahimelech and all of the priesthood and the entire city of Nob at risk, uh, and he owns up to all of it. There's not much he can do about this, right? But he does do one significant thing, verse 23. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. And so he promises to protect the final remnant of the city of Nod, uh, who will eventually be, the, throughout all of David's life, the high priest of Israel. Um, so notice here now, effectively, we're seeing a kingdom within a kingdom. It's not that David has defected from Saul. Saul has defected from God. And in the midst of this, the prophets stand with David, both Samuel and now Gad in his presence. The priesthood is almost obliterated by Saul in his anger. And now Abiathar stands uh, with David. And so uh, here we can see that God is starting to build around David a people. And it's not over yet. Uh, it's not going to change for, for a long time coming. In fact, even when Saul's dead, it's the tribe of Judah that th- enthrones David. And the rest of Israel goes, eh, I don't know about that. It's another seven years until he finally becomes king. And so David's life here becomes kind of a striking illustration of something that I think we really are terrible at as human beings who seek to follow God which is recognizing the difference between calling and sending. Recognizing the difference between God's plans for us and the path that fulfills that plan. Okay. The way of David, primarily because of the wicked heart of Saul, is hard and it is long. But along the way, God makes David, shapes David builds David, brings a people along David. I I mean, this is a super obvious illustration, and it's not necessarily pertinent to the study, but just consider the fact that right now, anyone who stands with David has to do so at great risk. There's no great advantages here. All of the risk is present. Here, he finds true loyalty in Israel. But more importantly, here, God finds true loyalty in David, and he teaches him how to trust the Lord in the hard times preparing him how to trust the Lord on the throne. And so I would just encourage you, if you feel like there's promises God has made to you, places where he's taking you, and they seem a far way off right now, we need to recognize that what we sometimes label detours are exactly the right and proper path to where God is taking us. Uh, and sometimes, uh, this is when we started this church, this is what my pastor said to me, because the first few years were pretty rough. He said, honestly, Justin, I think a lot of times God works in us before he can work through us. And David is in the crucible right now. He's in the furnace. He's being refined. Uh, But the glory of David the king, it comes out of here. It comes in this place as he learns to truly trust the Lord. The Psalms that we read that are written in this time are not just lessons for us. These are the personal lessons from the school of hard knocks that David goes through and discovers You know what? When you're starving and on the run, when a whole nation stands against you, when you have nothing to win and everything to lose, God is present and he is faithful and he is good. Let's pray.
Father, you never call us to be ambitious martyrs, to pray, God, bring upon me every disaster in the book. But you do ask us to pray with the caveat that your will would be done, to recognize whatever our sight is, you see further. Whatever our thoughts are, your thoughts are above our thoughts. Whatever we call good, and even sometimes what we call bad, Lord, we can trust in your big picture, full reality stemming from your perfect character goodness. And so I pray, Lord, that we would uh, be a people of faith, be a people of hope, knowing that nobody hopes for the things they see. But it's here that you build our faith, our trust, our hope. It's here that you shape us into the men and women you desire to use tomorrow. And so whatever our day brings this week, whatever it brings this year, as long as you are with us, Lord, we say so be it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.